anything serious. Okay, so we're going to be jumping in today to Luke chapter 19 and part of chapter 20. And before I forget, though, I'm going to challenge you guys to pull out your cell phones right now. Pull out your phones. Pull out your phones and then put them under your seat, all right? I've been seeing a lot of distraction on Sundays lately, and I know it's going to be like not breathing for you, but you can do it. You can do it. Um, So uh, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke, and Jesus and his followers have moved into Jerusalem, and this is a city that rejects the prophets, that kills the prophets, and today we're going to see this showdown between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. And it's going to happen right at the location of the temple. This is a place that was set up by God so that Israel could experience his presence among his people. But the crazy thing is that now his real presence, the the presence of God has come to them in Jesus Christ. But this is where he will experience his greatest rejection. So the location, this location even today, is still a place where Jesus is rejected. Did you know that only 2% of Jerusalem is considered Christian today? So the location is really significant. Um, This is a picture of the Wailing Wall that many of you may know about, and the the retaining wall you see on the right-hand side, that is original foundational retaining wall stones um, at the the temple that was built um, uh, by one of the kings there. And so... Um, that, that location is where Jewish men will gather. That's the men's section right there. They will gather and they will, they will write down prayers. They will sit there and pray. They'll read the law. And they will put in their prayers into the, the cracks and crevices of that wall and still waiting for the, the Messiah. They don't believe Jesus was the Messiah, so they're still waiting for the Messiah. Next picture is an Orthodox man <clears throat> who's walking down some stairs toward the, uh, I don't have a clicker, so you guys need to click there at the back. Can you, there we go. He's checking his phone. See, he's distracted too. Um, but he's walking toward the Wailing Wall, and you'll see people in that part of the city just moving toward the, that wall to go pray and to, and to meditate on, on their, their scriptures. Um, it's also not limited. Next picture is an Orthodox boy, also in the same. You will see men and also boys there in that section praying and, and, uh, and meditating on their scriptures in, by that wall. Um, and it happens at night. It happens at all hours of the night, all hours of the day, all the time. The next picture is what they call the Dome of the Rock. This is actually on top of the, what's, what was the Temple Mount. And this is not <coughs> considered a mosque, but it is an Islamic center. So there, what was once the Temple Mount is now considered as an Islamic site. And this is probably the most famous site in all, all of Jerusalem. And... Uh, um, we can't go in there because we're not Muslim, but um, we can take pictures of it and see it, of course. And then uh, the next picture, you'll see, you'll see our group taking a picture of something in the wall that you can barely see um, in the side of that uh, Islamic center. And our tour guide pointed this out to us. Um, that is supposed to be the other direction, but if you look sideways, it's supposed to be up and down. I don't know how it got, looks like that, but um, it looks like the face of a devil, if you look at it this way. And uh, I'm not superstitious, I'm just saying that our tour guide points out the fact that it's interesting that in the tile of, in the tile, it, I had the picture like this. I'm not sure what took place there, but it got somehow turned around. So, 
Um, but in the tile, you, you can, he says, I, lit- he goes, I, I, I think this place on this mount is literally sealed with evil because there's been this rejection of Jesus. And this is kind of the focal point, the center point of that rejection. And there's still this showdown happening today between Jesus and um, in this place. And in the next few chapters, Jesus will teach in the temple complex until he's finally arrested. So turn to Luke chapter 19, verse 45, where it says, And he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on to his words. So it's the time of the Passover. Um, Hey, if you guys in the back want to grab a seat, there's seats all over this place over here if y'all want to get. I feel bad y'all are standing up at the back just hanging out. So, um, yeah, y'all can grab a seat. Let's clap for chairs. Let's clap for seats. Yes. Woo-hoo. Yeah, you're, there's plenty of seats. Um, so it's a time of the Passover, and it's an important time for Israel because uh, this is when the city would swell to like 15 to 20 times its normal size. So imagine Temple, Texas, um, going from its current size to about a million people for a week or two. How, how chaotic that would feel, how um, it's a celebration, this Passover feast. And what would happen is they would, they would come to, to, to make a pilgrimage from all over, and sometimes they, they couldn't afford to bring animals with them to sacrifice, so they would, they would purchase these animals at the temple complex. Well, there's a big scam happening with the religious leaders, and they're using the Gentile court, a place that was meant to be for the Gentiles to be able to have access to God, and for the Jewish people to introduce the Gentiles to God in this Gentile court. But instead, the Jewish religious leaders are using the Gentile court for this market scam as, they, as people come in and as they exchange their money and they charge crazy rates on the exchange rate, they also have a whole scam happening with, with sacrificial animals taking place, and they're making a lot of money off the crowds that are coming into Jerusalem for the Passover. So instead of this Gentile court being used to introduce Gentiles to their God, they're using that place for selfish gain. And I think about how that relates to us in the church. Um, I think we can learn something here because do we show hospitality to people, outsiders, as they come into the church? the body of Christ, or do we use it for selfish gain? I want you to think about how you, normally, how you normally think about when you attend here. Are you thinking about the outsider? Are you thinking about including someone who's not like you? I will, I will be honest with you. Whenever a new person comes into this place on Wednesday or Sunday, sometimes when I say, hey, what grade are you in? And they tell me, sometimes I get really excited and say, you know what? I've got a great group for you to be a part of. And I know the leaders and students there are going to do a great job receiving that person in and accepting them and including them. And then sometimes they might say they're in a certain grade and I go, I'll, inside I'll kind of go, oh, I'm not so sure that's going to happen in this particular situation. Because sometimes we struggle. I think our, our, our community groups at times can be a little bit, you know, not as inclusive as other ones might be. Um, maybe so tight-knit that no one else is welcome in. And, but here's the reality, though. When you, we want you in community, but 
real community is always missional. And I think the, the Jewish leaders forgot that. And they're using this place in the temple, this Gentile court, for selfish gain, and not using it to introduce the Gentiles to their God. Now, the religious leaders, they'd forsaken their mission, and so um, that's all happening there in the temple. And so Jesus drives out these people from the temple, and then he begins teaching there. Now, these religious leaders are angry at him. They're so angry they want to kill him, but they're afraid because they know the crowds love Jesus. It says they're hanging on his every word, so they love him. The crowds love him, and the religious leaders are, are terrified about that, and they don't want the crowds turning on them. So look down at Luke chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, where it says, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who, who it is that gave you this authority. So these religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus, and they say if he has no, because here's the reality, if, if Jesus says he has no authority, then he'd be in trouble with the Jews because he invaded their temple, and he acted like a prophet, kicking everybody out. So if he says he has no authority, he's in trouble with the Jewish leaders, but if he says he's, his authority comes from God, then he could be in trouble with the Romans. So they know they can't kill him, but they're trying to trap him in what he says. And they ask, you know, what authority do you do these things? And they're referring mainly to his teachings and him kicking people out of the temple complex. And they're referring even to his healings. If you recall earlier in the Gospels, Jesus will heal someone and they will say things like, by what authority are you healing this person? Which is a weird question to ask when someone just healed somebody. By what authority do you heal this person? But they're talking about all of those things when they ask him this question. Look down at verse 3 where it says, He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, then all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus' question is brilliant for two main reasons. First, it traps them into answering their own question because John the Baptist affirmed that Jesus was the Messiah. So if the leaders say that John's authority is from heaven, so the crowd thought that John's authority was from heaven, then Jesus could say, well, then why didn't you believe what he said about me? So in forcing them to take a position on John, he's forced them to take a position on himself. The second reason why his question is brilliant is it puts them in a tough spot politically with the crowd. Because if they say that John is not from God, then the crowds are going to turn on him or turn on them as the religious leaders. We see, of course, the same thing with politicians today. You know, ones that are afraid to tell the truth because they're afraid the crowd's going to turn on them. The same thing was happening back then. The crowd, or the, the religious leaders are scared of the crowd and how they'll react in this interaction with Jesus. So for these religious leaders, this really shows the spiritual condition of their hearts because real truth was less important than what the crowds thought of them. And they're playing to the crowds. 
And so, so they tap out, and they refuse to answer the question Jesus puts before them. So then Jesus refuses to answer their question. So here's the big idea. The religious establishment can't see who Jesus is, but the crowds, many in the crowds, they do see who Jesus is. And I think it's interesting, we, I think we see this today, that those, so often those who grow up spiritually privileged have the hardest time actually following Jesus. While those who may have little to no religious background may end up following him fervently. We see the same thing happening here in this story. Now, in this, ver- in this passage, this is a really tense moment because on the one side, there's this crowd that's hanging on his every word, but on the other side, there's these religious leaders that want to kill Jesus. And you would think that most people would try to, you know, calm everyone down and diffuse the situation, but Jesus isn't most people. Instead of calming everyone down, he tells a story that's meant to confront the religious leaders. Look at verse 9, where it says, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out, meaning that he rented it out to tenants, and he goes into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So there's this, there's this man who owns a vineyard, and he, he rents it out while he goes to another country. And then he sends one of his servants to, to go get some fruit from the vineyard that he owns. And what do the renters do? They give the servant a beating, and then they send him away. So look at verse 11 where it says, And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. So it says the owner sends a a second servant, then a third servant, and the same thing happens. So what point is Jesus trying to make? He's making the point, he's showing them what, what Israel has done to many of the Old Testament prophets. So then the vineyard owner goes further and sends his only son. Does this sound familiar? Look at verse 13. It says, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they, throw him, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Jesus uses these two pictures. The one is that of a vineyard. Very often, Israel was depicted as a vineyard that God is keeping. And then he switches to this metaphor like a building. And it says, he refers to this stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We don't, have to, we don't have to think too hard about what Jesus is talking about because they have rejected all of the prophets, and now that Jesus is here, they've rejected him and his ministry. And Jesus says God's going to replace the religious establishment with his true followers. And this statement about the stone and the cornerstone is a quote from Psalm 118, and it's a prophecy about Jesus being rejected. 
Now, whenever you and I think of the concept of a cornerstone, we think of, you know, something small on the side of a building that might have a date inscribed on it. And it's more of a monumental thing or a, an aesthetic thing in how we do construction today. But I want to show you, there is a massive stone. So you saw the Wailing Wall picture earlier. If you continue further, it, looks, it's, it feels like you're underground. You kind of are when you see this video. But there is a massive stone. They have, they have found the, the largest stone that's associated with the temple complex. And you'll see the stone here in a minute. We walked down this exact same walkway on our trip to Israel. So let's watch this video. Hopefully this works. So this is the same western wall we can see outside. It's the continuation of it. We're not standing on top of it or beneath it or on the other side of it. Just along the same wall. But where it's concealed. Where it's hidden. If you look over here at the bottom, and with your gaze, slowly climb up to the top, you will notice different kinds of construction. You're looking at two different periods. 1400 years ago, when the Muslims first came here, they find parts of the wall ruined, destroyed. They decide to renovate. These small stones over here, and the larger ones above them, all the way to the top is 1,400 year Muslim renovation. But from here, and all the way down to the valley, we're talking about four stories beneath us. This beautiful symmetric shaped stone with this nice frame around it, aligned so neatly one near each other and one on top of the other with no cement in between to glue the stones together. We call this dry construction, kind of like Lego. This is 2,000 year old Jewish construction. So uh, look at me, don't follow me. I want to show you something. From here, and all the way, going 40 feet along the western wall, 40 feet, that is longer than a bus, you're looking at the largest stone found in the Temple Mount. It is 12 feet high and 14 feet deep. It weighs close to 600 tons. That's equivalent to like a I would say 200 elephants, or if you want it in a modern scale, two airplanes. The big jumbo jets, the transatlantic 747 with the people and the luggage after shopping in Israel. That's heavy, yeah. Um, two big airplanes, one stone, and the big question is how? How do they carve a stone like this? How do they roll it here? How do they lift it up and place it so accurately? I believe a good question deserves even a better answer. The answer is we don't know. Physicists, mathematicians, archaeologists, engineers, historians today don't know how with the lack of technology they had 2,000 years ago, they were able to move something so big. This is a mystery, an enigma. But there is one story I could share with you about the stone. When Titus destroys the city, he sees this big stone. As a tactician, as a, a general, he understands perfectly the symbolic value that the stone has for the Jewish people, for their moral and pride and self-esteem. So you, you have to try to imagine him telling his soldiers, guys, we need to destroy this because we need to break the Jews not only physically, but also mentally, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally. Try to imagine Roman soldiers standing way above us, pushing stones from the wall down to the marketplace below us, stone after stone, row after row, until they get to this big stone. When they do, they huff, they puff, the stone doesn't budge. They try to break it, they try to destroy it, 
But luckily for us, in the end, instead of them breaking the stone, the stone pretty much broke, broke them. And they left us this amazing 2,000-year-old testimony. So it kind of blows your mind when you think of what cornerstone meant when it comes to the Temple Mount. And Jesus alludes to that, I think, here. And what he's saying, he's saying, you have rejected me. You have, you have thrown me on the garbage pile. But he says, I'm the cornerstone. The most important piece of a building is the cornerstone. And he's saying that through me, all these things hold together. All that the Old Testament prophets said, all that holds together through me, the cornerstone. So in rejecting Jesus and his ministry, the leaders are missing out on what they need the most. And they're like builders who foolishly reject the stone that's most crucial to the whole building. So Luke 20, 18 says, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This means that anyone who rejects Jesus as the Messiah will be rejected in final judgment one day. Mike McKinley says it like this, Jesus is the cornerstone on which people are built or broken. And listen, there is, there is no in-between with Jesus. You can build your life on him or be broken by him. And this parable is not, is not aimed at his followers, but, but those that have rejected him and rejected the idea that he's the Messiah. But I think there are still some principles that we can apply to ourselves today because when you go back to the earlier metaphor he used of the, of the vineyard and these renters or the tenants, these renters are acting like they're owners rather than caretakers of the vineyard. And instead of using the land for the benefit of the owner, they're using that land for their own selfish purposes. And I think this is what sin looks like in our lives, that God has given us many resources. God has given you many resources. He's given you relationships. He's given you intelligence and personality qualities and experience, spiritual gifts to be used in the body of Christ. But we've been given these things to serve God and to bear fruit for him, but sin tempts us to think that we own our own vineyard, that we don't belong to God. And so when you go back to the metaphor of the cornerstone and the foundation, the question becomes, what alternative cornerstones are you building your life upon? What are you trying to build your life upon? And so now if you look at the story, instead of this confrontation leading to repentance, the scribes and the priests, they're now trying to physically hurt him. Look at verse 19 where it says, The scribes and the chief priests, they sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. At least they're perceptive. They perceived that he had told the parable against them. Look at verse 20 where it says, So they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he had said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So because these, these scribes and Pharisees, they're, they're afraid of the crowd, they're not very courageous to confront Jesus himself. So they send some spies to, to try to entrap him. And now, the spies are trying to blend in by saying some flattering things. And they say, you know, teacher, we know, 
what you say is true. So we have a question for you. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, that might seem like a not a big deal question, but why do they care about this? Well, they're trying to trap him again. Because if he says that people should not pay the tax to Caesar, well, then the scribes and the, Pharisees and the priests can report him to Roman authorities. But then the Romans could do the dirty work and dispose of Jesus. But if he says that they should pay the tax, then the crowd could turn on him and see him as a traitor. So how does Jesus respond to this question? Well, look at verse 23 where it says, But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, which was a day's wage. He says, Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. So his response is brilliant, like it always is, and it turns them quiet. And they're asking how much they have to obey the governing authorities. And his response, we don't have time to get into all of this, but his response is consistent with the words of Paul over in Romans 13 and also Peter in 1 Peter 2. And the big idea is that, yeah, generally speaking, Christians should obey the laws of the land as, unless those laws make them disobey God. That's the big idea principle here. Now, on the screen here, I've got a picture of, it's a replica of a denarius. And a picture of Caesar on there. It's a Caesar Augustus. And, uh, and so Jesus takes a coin kind of like this, a bit of a day's wage back then. And he says, whose face is on the coin? And, of course, they say, well, it's Caesar. He says, well, render to Caesar what's Caesar? Caesar's and render to God what is God's. But here's the interesting thing. At that time, they saw Caesar as divine. They saw Caesar as one to be worshipped in that culture. At least the Romans saw him that way. The Jews did not. So even what's crazy is the Jews were against putting an image of a man on anything. A statue or even a coin like this was against their way of, way of faith, their religion. So the fact that Jesus goes and uses this thing that a Jew would have detested and says, yeah, give Caesar his coins. It's got Caesar's face on it. Give Caesar what is Caesar? What is Caesar's? But when you think about humanity, give to God the things that belong to God, what image is impressed upon us? It's the image of God. God has made us in his image. So God's image is, is upon us. It's in us. God's made us in his image. So give to God the things that are God's. That means that we belong to God because we're made in his image. A pastor named Skip Heitzig says it like this. Caesar has a right to collect your tax, but God has a right to collect your worship. Caesar has a right to your revenue, but God has a right to your reverence. So these Roman empires, of course, are seen as divine. And so Jesus makes, I think, a really fascinating play on, on words here when he says this. So the question is, do you see your life like that? Do you see your life as, as a life that my life belongs to God? It didn't belong to me. My life belongs to God. And he's inviting these leaders, these religious leaders, to give their lives to God as well. And so he makes the same invitation to us. Uh, writer Mark, Mike McKinley says it like this, God has made us in his image, and so only he deserves 
and can justly command our ultimate love and allegiance. The one who has given us all we have is the one to whom we are to give our all. So we're going to go to our breakouts. We've got discussion questions at the back, I believe. Um, and also, before we head out, though, 